Hello, I'm Greg. Let's have an inappropriate conversation about moments of epiphany. In this case, it would hurt my face if I faked a smile. I'm going with the uh, literary or perhaps the more informal definition of the word epiphany here to talk about a moment of manifestation, a moment of striking appearance, quoting Wikipedia, the sudden realization or comprehension of the larger essence or meaning of something. In essence here, what I'm going to do is hearken back to inappropriate conversations number 79. As I recall, I left that particular discussion about uh, a farewell address from the Mexican mountains and things that changed my worldview dramatically in high school by getting to the point of saying, hey, you know what? Something happened. There was a moment of truth. I'm sitting in this courtyard in between the junior high school part and the high school part of the complex where I attended school in the secondary school. So behind me, if I'm facing out toward the soccer fields, sitting on a sort of a stone bench, behind me is the room that the orchestra and the symphonic band and the marching band practiced in, but there was nobody playing there that day. It was fairly early in the morning before school, so there were no noises of squeaky tennis shoes on a hardwood floor coming out of the junior high school gymnasium that was onto the right-hand side of me. And to my left, fairly far away from where I was sitting, was a cracked window, early spring, so it made sense for there to be you know, ventilation in the unair-conditioned part of that building, where the concert chorus was practicing for what would be their spring concert, their big finale. And I was sitting in a place where I was you know, only just barely, almost indecipherably able to hear them. Now, <clears throat> over time, because I'd had a relationship with the concert chorus, sitting in as essentially a student assistant in my last semester of school, I could hear well enough to sort of make out kind of what the song was. And, you know, the longer I sat, and I think when I left this story in Inappropriate Conversation 79, I hadn't even gotten to the point of really recognizing the song yet. I sat there long enough and listened carefully enough to recognize that the song was I Sing the Body Electric from the movie Fame. Now, this is 1982, give or take. So we're talking about a high school concert course really doing aggressive effort to play contemporary music because, you know, Alan Parker was filming the show fame in 1979, 1980. It was released in theaters in 1980 and was part of the conversation for Academy Award nominations for best score and so forth in 1981, spring 1981. So really one year later, after this really would have gotten on the map in terms of the awareness of concert course directors and music directors and high school programs. This is now being, you know, bringing this music into the high school. So I'm sitting there listening to I Sing the Body Electric, and it clicks with me that, yes, I've been running away from a real sense of calling, and, and not just a, uh, a human emotion sense of calling, but something that had enough of a supernatural quality to it that it could no longer be ignored, and I was going to act. And I said in that show that at some point, 
before the end of May, I would come back and, and talk about that. Now, I'm a little bit after the 30th anniversary of the actual conversation itself. I'm recording this before Ascension Sunday in the month of May, but it won't be released until the middle of the week after that. And I don't know whether there's any significance to the dates anyway, because this conversation really did not have much to commend it. Nothing I brought to the table from the perspective of speaking to someone who the rumors in high school were that there was a drug problem and you know somebody needed to say something, either because the rumors were false and needed to be challenged. And if the people were speaking behind this young woman's back, she needed to know that piece of information. I had learned as a sophomore in high school, two years earlier, that there is a tremendous amount of power in the people who are the source of ugly rumors, just knowing it. Something about you know, casting a light upon it, uh, pulling back the shade, and sort of forcing a moment of truth has a way of stopping people from spreading rumors, and even has a way of you know, stopping the people who've created the rumors from exaggerating or overselling their point of view. And it's a risky thing. Uh, I was a sophomore in high school, a friend of mine that I'd come to meet, really the, the first in this series of, of women that I'd encountered that I was not necessarily going to be dating, either because I wasn't interested in dating them or they weren't interested in dating me, or if at some point along the way, one of us or the other one of us got an interest, it wasn't mutual. But you know, this one, early on, pretty much a given, we're not going to be dating. Now, part of the reason for that was that she was out of my league. Truth be known, there was just no question about that. It was one of the more obvious statements of fact I could have made at the time. But the other thing was that I wasn't all that interested because I didn't have what I considered to be country club credentials as a sophomore in high school. I wasn't really all that interested in wearing the newest designer clothes, and I wasn't the kind of person who was going to get obsessed about you know, what kind of car I drove. Even two years sooner than this, in eighth grade, I remember doing an exercise, and I think probably a lot of junior high and high school students will be familiar with this, where in an economics class or a social studies class, or even in a home, e at home economics class, you pretend you're married. So the, the classroom gets paired off into you know, groups of two, and they have to set up a household together. And the lesson being taught, of course, is how do you man manage a budget? Based on the career you pick, what's your salary? Based on that, where will you live? And you sort of kind of work your way through it. And it, for me, it was the first real practical exercise I ever did in terms of trying to understand if I was serious about being a journalist one day, what did that mean in terms of you know, where you were going to live, what car you were going to buy, just your lifestyle in general. And unfortunately, I did horrifically bad. It's one of the worst grades I got in junior high school because the girl that I was paired up with, and this wasn't your choosing, this was all very random, was while being very attractive and very personable, didn't really have a lot of good judgment. And so when we, no matter what careers we picked we were going to be doing, um, it ended up in her mind that we were going to own a Jaguar, be part of the country club, and live in the nicest part of town. And of course, our economics were such that we essentially finished the exercise declaring bankruptcy. It just wasn't going to work, right? And even though my family, you know, we, we did reasonably well, we weren't suffering economically in any significant way. We also weren't extravagant. So go two years further down the line. I'm in 10th grade, sophomore in high school. And I've got this friend of mine that's in journalism class, although clearly not all that interested in being a journalist, just in the class. And horrific rumors are circulating throughout the high school about her. And really, at first, they were just like, what's the point in this? Why would you gossip about somebody's sex life? 
you know, it just didn't make sense to me, so I ignored it. But then it got to the point where I began to realize that, first off, I I'd uncovered the fact by asking questions. I figured out who the source of the rumors were, and the source of the rumor was somebody that I knew, somebody that I knew fairly well. And I was shocked a little bit at how vindictive, cold-hearted this individual was. It, it didn't strike me from my experience with her and her family, uh, church-going person, upstanding member of the marching band, so forth and so on, that there would be this sort of mean streak, for want of a better word. But then again, I didn't have a whole lot of practical experience with how high school girls treated each other either. I was more worried about how high school boys treated each other and trying to navigate through that sort of labyrinth. And so here I am stuck with the fact that if I pull back the curtain and shine some light on that situation, it's going to shine the light on the fact that it's my clique, my group, my marching band friends who are creating all this havoc. So once again, thought crosses my mind, might be kind of smart to ignore this. Because again, from a social standing perspective, I've got this girl, wide, widely acknowledged to be out of my league, runs in a circle in high school where there's a tremendous amount of political and social power. So, you know, I'm certainly not going to draw a line in the sand and defend this woman in the marching band who's wrong. But I also wasn't looking to pick that fight either. But at some point, it became impossible to ignore the consequences of the actions. And the real tipping point for me in that situation, without that much direct and intentional prayer on my part, I've described myself in previous inappropriate conversations. In these kinds of friend-to-friend relationships, intersexual friendships, as being a praying man, but I was maybe too young, too immature, and too in over my head at this point as a sophomore in high school to really have that kind of perspective. And yet I've told friends in the past that I do feel that the Holy Spirit's influence must have been strongly at play because the kinds of things that happened and the decisions that I made and the consequences of those things really incredibly consistent with what would happen later when I would stop, maybe even put the emergency brake on and refuse to proceed until I had answers to prayer. In this case, what happened, though, was that in just casual conversation, either you know, doing some copy editing or doing some layout design, or maybe on one of those days where the, the newspaper print deadline has happened and you don't have the next set of stories up and running yet, so you're kind of in a little bit of a downtime, we're just chatting, talking away. She's again, wonderful lady, great personality. And this woman tells me that she's very confused about the last few dates that she's been on. Because while boys have always been very nice to her, why wouldn't you be very nice to this lady? She's incredibly attractive. That lately she's found that they have a short fuse and a lot of impatience. And that she's finding herself going on one date and two dates and that's it. And without being too, you know, vain, she basically said that she in all of her lifetime, has never really been used to not getting asked out again. You know, being in a long-term relationship and having the boy break up with you is one thing. But going out on two or three dates and then having it suddenly stop, no more phone calls, well, that was very strange for her. The real thing, though, was that she described one of the, you know, dates that she went on that was one and done with one of the football players. And this, again, wasn't the, just the only football player in the series. But with one of the football players, he um, said they were going to a party. And when they got to the house that they were going to, the house was completely empty except for them. Even the guy who was hosting the party wasn't there. And, you know, the, the football player had a key to his friend's house. So the woman's very confused, not really understanding what's going on here. Is there a party or isn't there? And at some point, she sort of put her foot down and said, listen, if there's not going to be a party here after all, then let's just go to a movie or something. 
And you no, know, he, he seemed very disappointed by that. It seemed like in her mind, he was waiting for the party to start. And if he just waited long enough, the party was going to start. And, and he was mad at her for losing patience and not being willing to stick it out a little bit further. Well, of course, she didn't know about the rumors. She was a sure thing. She was an easy lay. And these had gone on for almost a year without her being aware of them. Because I can remember when she was a freshman in high school, dating a junior in high school, and that relationship carried forward. It lasted for a few months, and it went from being a sophomore in high school to a senior in high school. What I didn't realize at the time was that the guy that she was dating, this older guy, which again, as a parent, I think I'd be a little bit concerned about that. I'd been concerned about lots of things based on just her appearance and her early maturity would have created some, some challenges both for her social life and, you know, again, for your mental health as a, as a parent, trying to make sure that your daughter remains safe when people assume she's older than she is. But the guy that he, she had dated before her had dated this girl that I knew in the band. Now, I didn't know that. So there's this whole subtext of somebody stealing somebody's boyfriend and that really being the source of all this spite and hatred. But the spite and hatred turned into rumors that probably started off I, innocently is the wrong word. I don't want to use the word innocently, but started off simply with, well, if David dumped me to go out with her, then she must be putting out when I wouldn't. So therefore she's a slut and that sort of thought process. Right. And that turns into she puts out and that turns out to she puts out a lot and that turns out to she's easy. And now all of a sudden everybody in the football team wants to go out with her. What was the reality? What did the reality and the rumor differ? Well, the real difference was that she wasn't putting out. She wasn't engaging in the sexually promiscuous behavior that the rumor mill was gristling out about her. And so when this football player in this one example invites her to a quote unquote party, he meant a, you know, a party on his face is what he meant. He meant, you know, his private time with her because what he had done is he had secured the keys to a house of a friend where the friend had agreed to make himself scarce. And all the other members of that family were going to be gone. Now, were they you know, moving, a, you know, moving a kid to or from college, like an older brother or an older sister? Were they on a cruise? I don't know the details. I just know that no other family member besides the teenage boy was in the house. And he'd given his football player buddy a key. And his football player buddy had taken this opportunity to invite this girl on a date that was not going to be to a party after all. And essentially, when she you know, got impatient and exasperated because she was ready to have a fun time at a party with lots of other people, probably dressed accordingly to impress not just him, but also peers. You know, it's a weird thing that women, I think, do that men don't so much is that men often aren't ever dressing to impress anybody. Or if they are, it's very targeted and specific. I'm going to dress this way to impress the person who's conducting the job interview. But I don't really care what the secretary thinks or what the people who aren't interviewing me think or what the parking lot attendant thinks. But I feel pretty comfortable saying that somebody with a country club mentality does care a lot about what everybody thinks. That going to a party is a chance to wear the clothes that you want everyone to see you in. And so as opposed to being in a social situation where she had an opportunity to entertain, here she is in an empty house. And what she didn't realize, here she was in an empty house with somebody who intended to have sexual intercourse with her that night, right then and right there. In this case, the reason she brought it up in the journalism class was that she was very concerned about his anger. It confused her. She was seeing a temper she wasn't expecting. And in this case, 
She was not expecting the first date to turn into a second or a third. She was already concerned about why she was only getting two dates anyway. But in this case, she knew better because she probably would have said no if he called her back because she'd seen an anger and an aggression that she wasn't expecting. But when I was trying on the story from his perspective, listening to her speak, I thought, yeah, when you think this through, she's such a nice person and she's very cooperative. I'm sure he thought that she was on board, that it wasn't just that he'd assumed that because she'd slept with quote unquote, everybody else, she would sleep with him. He may have picked up some verbal and nonverbal cues that he interpreted as her saying to him, tonight's the night she had pulled in his mind, a bait and switch on him. And in this case, uh, again, not to belabor the point, but the bait was pretty impressive. So the switch probably hit him pretty hard. As I thought through it, I realized that this person that I'd come to know well enough to really have some feelings for and have some feelings in a somewhat confusing way. Because again, I know I'm not dating her. I'm not dating her because I can't afford to financially. I'm not dating her because I don't think that it's a good match in terms of her appearance, my appearance, her tastes in men and my tastes in women, to be honest with you. And yet I'm still having this great, strong, powerful, emotional connection. And now that emotional connection head to head with a real situation where something did have to be done. So I had to weigh knowing too much about these rumors for too long and having said too little with the possibility that maybe the next person who asks around on that date doesn't take no for an answer doesn't decide that he's either going to have to take her to a movie or take her home, that he's got her there in an empty house and he's going to take advantage of it, and that she needed to understand more of the big picture in order to defend herself. And I provided for her in what I think is probably a very ugly memory, not a very positive memory, a moment of epiphany. One of those moments where you tell somebody the rest of the story, you give them a piece of information they don't have that then makes them look at a lot of previous events, not just one or two, but a lot of previous events going back for almost a full calendar year in a completely different light. Something that crystallized the impression. Now, why provide that information? Well, I think I've laid out a pretty good case that there was a certain amount of danger if I didn't. And I would have felt a greater degree of responsibility had I realized, which I just did, that there was a, a good reason to say something, to have kept that information to myself and then actually have that other shoe drop and something much worse occur, well, then some of that's on me, right? Because I was in a unique position to know what to say and in a unique position to say it. I could speak not battling rumor with rumor, but I actually knew the facts. I knew where the rumors had come from. I'd heard it straight from the mean girl's mouth for want of a better word. So as I spoke to her, she took that information on. She changed her approach. She began saying no to invitations to dates, asking coy questions, but probing questions to help get a sense of what people thought they might you know, be getting by going out with her and really tainted the rest of her high school experience. But I don't think it tainted it because she knew this information. I think it tainted it because right at the start of 10th grade, which for us was the beginning of high school, somebody who was a year older than her spread a rumor about her out of nothing more than petty jealousy, and it turned the tide. So I'm weighing this past experience, and I'm weighing it on a couple of fronts, because this friend of mine from our sophomore year in high school never once asked the question, why are you befriending me? What's in it for you? 
What are your motives? What are your intentions? What's this all about? As I play the rest of the story out, I think the difference that I would make is just in the personalities between the two women. One, more trusting, more naive. Obviously, trusting and naive enough to have gone through almost a whole year not realizing that these kind of rumors were being spread. Not having a context for the way her experience with dating boys had changed from where they had been just a year sooner. So part of that is from that alone. What I didn't realize, though, is I just sort of thought that if you're honest with people, if you're genuine, if your heart's in the right place, that that alone will take care of things, that that will see you through. And as a senior in high school, at this moment of epiphany for me, I was really struck by the fact that I had taken for granted all those years that everybody was going to react the way I'd experienced before. There's a certain, you know, Newton's law of motion associated with this, you know, there's an inertia there that whatever you've experienced is going to be what you expect all your future experiences to be unless something really jars you into a different way of thinking. And so I was very surprised when I was expressing interest in having a friendship and sharing some thoughts with this you know, girl my senior year in high school. I was very surprised that her answer was sort of as standoffish as it was. I was basically, not by her directly, she did not do me that favor, to be honest with you. And perhaps I hadn't earned it. But through friends or through friends of friends, I'm getting asked questions about what am I, what am I doing? What am I up to? What are my intentions? What's this all about? And her way of putting out that she wasn't interested in having this conversation with me, coming only from a place of she wasn't interested in dating me. And for whatever reason, there was nothing I could say, including I've been dating my girlfriend from this other high school for a year now. We're very happy. This isn't about dating. This isn't about, you know, sex. It's not about anything like that. It's about something I've got a problem. I just, I put it on me. I said, I've got a problem looking for some help. I've got a problem in that I'm hearing rumors I don't want to be hearing. <laughs> I'm feeling an almost supernatural call to deal with it when I'd rather not. But can I get a little bit of help here? And basically the answer I was getting was no. Uh, you can't get any help here because essentially what I was hearing was you can't be trusted. That was tough. It was very tough for me for lots of reasons because, I mean, first off, I'd been acting strangely. So I think that, you know, there's no doubt that her skepticism was well-founded. But part of the reason I felt comfortable behaving the way I'd had all along was that I could always point to this previous relationship. Me and the girl from journalism class didn't have another class together until the very end of our senior year, where me and my friend from my sophomore year and what I'd hoped would be this new friend from my senior year all sharing a class together, if I'm not mistaken, and that class was Honors English. So how do I open that door? How do I deal with the, the uh, wall being shut, the conversation not being welcome, and still believing Based on everyone I've spoken to, she doesn't have any idea these rumors are going on. You know, she doesn't have a clue, which led me to believe that they probably weren't true, that she probably was not using the type of drugs in the manner that had been described, that her situation was not as perilous, and I could have let it go. I mean, there was no date rape in her future that didn't seem like the same kind of situation. But then again, yeah, I, I didn't feel like I was calling the shots. I'd had enough experiences documented in great detail in inappropriate conversation 79 more than just what i documented there in fact that pretty much let me say you got to deal with this you got to deal with it one way or the other so i approached her under under the auspices of discussing the book by herman hesse siddhartha uh, we both 
we'd had a you know open reading sort of honors English sort of course that we could do where I think we're picking two books or three books during the course of the year. And I had made the choice of picking at least two of the ones that I picked were going to be very short. Now that was very lazy <laughs> and it was definitely a dodge, but I think that it served me very well because I think I, I got a lot out of the books at Artha, short though it was, I could have gone with the glass bead game or something that would have been more uh, lengthy, if not more challenging. But I think I got a lot from the perspective that that particular fictional biography had to offer. And the other one I picked was The Stranger. So I am with these two, again, relatively short books, very easy to read, but very challenging in terms of the ethical and moral questions, especially in the case of The Stranger, that were being raised. And she had read at least one of those two herself. Uh, I don't know if she was following a similar course to mine or not in terms of, if not taking the path of least resistance, taking the path of the least pages. But I knew that we had that in common, that both of us were needing to write a book report on each one of these books or one of the two of those books very soon. And I approached her from that perspective and we talked about, you know, the concepts that were there. And I basically introduced both under the heading of the stranger, but more under the heading of Siddhartha, this whole notion of there being something bigger and more spiritual at play here. Now, we both went to the same Protestant denomination. So you're talking about two Christians, two Protestant Christians, two Wesleyan Protestant Christians. This was, uh, should have been a great deal of common ground to be had there. And I think that she had a certain amount of devotion in her religious practice as well. So if this wasn't the uh, practicing Catholic having a conversation with a non-practicing Catholic. You didn't have that gulf. The conversation did not take off. It didn't flow like the bad news that I delivered in my sophomore year to a, a different young lady. It didn't flow at all, and I didn't ever get to the point of saying, hey, I'm hearing some rumors. What should we do? And instead, what I heard from her, because she ended up doing most of the talking, because I was completely tongue-tied at that moment of being essentially alone, leaving the education service center, heading back to the high school after, I think, setting up risers for a performance of the concert chorus where they were going to be singing, among other things, I sing the body electric and time in a bottle and songs like that, songs that you would expect a concert chorus to sing. And in the midst of doing all the talking, I just said, I interrupted her. I said, listen, I felt I needed to talk to you because there was a look you had on your face. There was something going on there that made me feel like I've got something to say, and I just need to say it. And I, I know from the look on your face, you may not want to hear it. But as long as what you're, as long as what you're communicating is genuine, then there's something I know that you need to know. She interrupted me. And again, this combination of, of anger and aggravation and honesty and empathy all kind of rolled up into one. And without letting me finish and without letting me tell the rest of my story, I never told the rest of my story. She said, it would hurt my face if I faked a smile. That wasn't a fake smile. That wasn't some show I was putting on. If you saw something that made you think that something was going on there, it wasn't, it wasn't a show, it was real. It would hurt my face if I faked a smile. Have you ever experienced uncontrollable bouts of geekdom? If so, the Anomaly podcast may be right for you. In clinical studies, Anomaly's interviews, convention reports, commentary on geek culture, games, sci-fi and fantasy television, literature, and film provided a feeling of fullness while promoting health for optimal geekiness. The Anomaly podcast is not suitable for all people. Only geekily active cool chicks with a healthy sense of humor should listen. 
Geekily active cool guys should listen too. Anomaly has resulted in sudden fits of squee. Broad smiles may appear without warning and could become permanent. The most common side effects of Anomaly are unconsciously joining in the Gamma Quadrant golf clap out loud at work to the amusement of co-workers and attempting to interject opinions aloud to hosts who can't hear the listener. But in all cases, the benefits outweigh the risks. Ask your Anomaly if you're healthy enough for entertainment of this caliber. You don't need a doctor's messy handwriting to obtain a free subscription. Anomaly is available over-the-counter at Stitcher Radio and in the iTunes, Zune, and BlackBerry stores. You can also stream episodes of Anomaly and Anomaly Supplemental at AnomalyPodcast.com. That's A-N-O-M-A-L-Y Podcast.com. Just one one-hour episode provides 24 hours of relief and never leaves a bad taste in your mouth. Music by JewelBeat.com Partly as a way of what you might describe as exercising the demons. Of this thought in my head, this experience I was having, these premonitions I was dealing with, I was trying to journal that away. I didn't want to talk with her. I didn't want to confront it. I wanted to leave well enough alone. And in the course of trying to sort of get rid of the thought or have the conversation in a different way, I'd been writing and writing essentially what started out as a journal, what morphed then into uh, sort of a letter, then morphed from there into a fictional vignette and then morphed from there into a short story. And the thing that really shook me to my core, the reason that this was an epiphany for me anyway, was that. I had gone through a period of time of trying to describe the female character in this, you know, very male-female story. And those weren't the exact words that I'd put into the character's mouth, but man, they were close. It was so close that on the one hand, you could just say, well, of course. You would first off had spent a lot of time thinking about this. It was haunting you in some way or another. You're fixated on this individual as somebody that needs to hear from you or that you need to hear from. And maybe you've just, you've got enough of an interest in her that you're able to recreate a character that fictionalizes her just that well. The problem is that my friends would have told me that, well, it was a bad story. It was just not a well-written story. And I've never really been able to revisit it. I have no interest as an author in trying to repair it or fix it. It's a moment in time. It's a train wreck is what it is. But you know, any casual reader of that would have said this isn't a realistic female character. You've done a bad job characterizing the female. The male character is just so you that you haven't really written anything. It's not real enough. You've used the crutch of autobiography to one degree or another. And the allegation there would have been that I didn't have her personality right. It wasn't realistic. No one would have expected that character to say something like, it would hurt my face if I faked a smile. And yet that's exactly what came out of her mouth. And it made me think, okay, Maybe this isn't something she needs to hear from me because I've taken my best shot at delivering that information and I haven't succeeded. Maybe this was as much about something I needed to hear from her and maybe I've heard it. Maybe I don't have to finish writing that story because the story in this one moment in time has been written. And maybe I've taken some words from this conversation, short-lived though it was, that I need to live by. And those words resonate with me to this very day. It would hurt my face if I faked a smile. If you can't give somebody anything else, 
If you can't hear the good news they have to give you, if you can't hear the bad news they have to give you, if you don't want to talk with them at all, you can at least be honest. You can at least be real. And that was the message that I took from that one failed attempt to communicate to somebody, I care about you, I care about you in a non-sexual way, and I don't care if anything comes from it as a relationship, I just want you to know it. It may go without saying, at this point in time, that I'm a big fan of the Alan Parker film, Fame. I suppose it could have gone either way. I could have come through an experience like this with the coincidence of the concert chorus singing you know, a song uh, from that film, and really the right song. I much prefer I sing the body electric to the title track, Fame, or Out There on My Own, or any of the other songs that I think were probably more popular in terms of getting radio play. But really, even... That song from the concert chorus, I Sing the Body Electric, was not the song for fame that really resonated with me at this time of really feeling kind of isolated and not, you know, even today, probably not having the vocabulary to tell somebody, hey, I'm in a stable dating relationship that's not threatened and isn't going to be threatened. And your gender being different from mine and us being heterosexual should not jeopardize that relationship. I am not living in a world, and I've said this on at least three shows, and I'll keep saying it in future ones as well. I am not living in a world where my ability to pick somebody up when they're down can only happen after I've first gone through a decision tree that's based almost entirely along the lines of gender. And, and that's kind of the world that my parents handed to me. That's the world that was reaffirmed my senior year in high school, that as a freshman in high school and a sophomore in high school, I'd been a little bit deceived by these friendships. If you go, go in with somebody where your socioeconomic standing is pretty similar, where there's nobody who would objectively say that it's impossible you two can ever be a couple, then that suddenly means that that sort of level playing field means that it's impossible for you two to be friends. And how do you deal with it when somebody says, hey, it is impossible for the two of us to be friends, and it's impossible because of our genders? Well, one of the things from the movie Fame that left a deep impression on me was the song, Is It Okay If I Call You Mine? Now, if you haven't seen the Alan Parker film, or if you haven't seen it in years, it's sung uh, in sort of almost an aside, that's how I would describe it dramatically, by the Montgomery McLean character, who is gay. And he is dealing with his own sexuality and trying to wrestle with what if two of his friends, a male and female characters, uh, start dating and start having a sexual relationship. And he is still essentially kind of out here on his own. But unlike the other characters in the main plot of the film, who are young and attractive and heterosexual and um, interacting with each other, or maybe competing for the interest of the opposite sex, he doesn't have as many choices. And the odds are against him because of societal constraints. And just at a moment where his two best friends are out on a date together, he's alone in his apartment pulls out his guitar, and sings the song. On one level, I'd always associated the song with the sexuality of the character. In other words, it was a song being sung by a gay character dealing with what might have been, in my young, immature mind, conceived of as a gay issue. There was a point in the, you know, the last part of the uh, high school, where the year before, in fact, I think it was, not in my senior year, 
where somebody who was older than me was in the high school talent show. So the not the formal sort of concert course performance, but the less formal sort of talent show kind of assembly. And he had chosen to play the piano and sing, Is It Okay If I Call You Mine? Now, this was a song performed by Paul McCrane in the movie Fame on guitar. And so I thought that was interesting in and of itself. The song worked well both ways. But it struck me that this older acquaintance of mine was a man dealing with some gender issues, dealing with some sexual orientation questions. Would not surprise me if to this very day that I identified that pretty accurately, even as a junior in high school. And I thought it was pretty brave of him in a state that's probably one of the most homophobic states in our country, that he would, at the end of his senior year, roll the dice and take a chance on singing something in a way that might raise questions about you know his sexual orientation. And the thing that, in addition to saying, this guy's got more guts than I do, because I wouldn't have the courage to do that. And then the other thought I had was, that's an incredibly beautiful song. And I've been wrong to interpret this song in such a narrow perspective as being part of the movie fame and belonging to the character of Montgomery in the movie fame or stuck in any way inside that paradigm. Now, I'm going to name Paul McCrane as my different drummer today, not because of the character Montgomery, but because of the song, Is It Okay If I Call You Mine? Because as much as I like Alan Parker as a director, film is a collaborative work and Parker deserves a tremendous amount of credit for bringing together a lot of very young and unknown people performing in areas like dance and music and theater and all that and putting it on screen in a way that tells a good dramatic story that should have been just unbelievably disjointed and perhaps even confusing or boring. And it's not. It's none of those things. I've never seen Fame the TV show, so I can't compare the two. But I've seen Fame the film several times, including very recently to sort of remind myself of what was my initial reaction to this Montgomery character, to Paul McCrane's performance. And I'll tell you what that reaction was. Again, growing up in one of the most homophobic states in the United States of America, if you'd bet me whether Paul McCrane was gay or straight, I would have bet you that he was gay. He convinced me as a young actor in a very early role. I, there was no doubt in my mind. I also, though, would not have predicted that he was the person who actually wrote the song he was performing. I just thought he pulled out an incredibly heartfelt and moving performance. But I think you've got to look at it and say, okay, here's this kid. He's an actor. He's doing a great performance and a good ensemble cast. He's doing a good job singing a song as if he's an amateur. And it's a song that he himself wrote. Gets even better. You can almost credit him with a semi-directorial decision. Because when he went into audition for a role where he was supposed to be part of the drama department... Uh, the one of the students who's going to this performing arts high school to do drama to come into the audition and sing a song really could have raised questions about whether he was the right guy for the part. And yet he showed up with guitar or piano. I'm not sure which and performed the song for the director, inspiring the director to find a place to put the song in the movie. Hi, I'm Tony Pucci, and I lost my sister Jenny to ALS. Songs for Jenny is a charity CD for ALS patient care and research. Otherwise known as Lou Gehrig's disease, ALS is a disease without a cure. The Songs for Jenny CD features my music along with guest vocalists from around the world. All proceeds from the sale of the Songs for Jenny CD will be donated to the ALS Association of America, Minnesota Chapter. To find out more and to purchase the CD, please visit www.songsforjenny.com. Well, first, how would you know 
Paul McCrane, if you saw him. I would not describe him as the one of the bigger stars in Hollywood or even one of the bigger stars on TV. But you might have known him as Graham Bauer on the Series 24, as Dr. Robert Romano on ER, or recently here as Josh Payton, a lawyer on Harry's Law. That's the face of Paul McCrane as an actor. The thing that I found interesting looking at his IMDb page didn't particularly surprise me, but I found it to be interesting is his directorial credits. I say not particularly surprising because I think in some ways McCrane contributed to a directorial decision in the movie fame on one level. Now that I know the things I know about the production of the film, the inclusion of the song, is it okay if I call you mine could lift right out. It wasn't part of the original screenplay. It wasn't part of the character's original arc, but to me, when I saw the movie, not only was it one of my favorite parts of the film, and the point in the film where I began to really trust the Montgomery character, you might even say got past whatever sort of homophobia I was feeling about this character, either from the sense of just being straight and having that gap, or being used to what Hollywood had been doing in movies like Cruising, to where I'm watching this character not wanting to like him too much, for fear of what the directors or the screenwriters were about to do to him. Because back then, these films were, you know, films that included homosexual characters were treated as some sort of morality play. And you could almost guarantee that if he wasn't going to turn out to be a villain, which clearly didn't seem to be the arc, he was probably going to turn out to be the victim. And the fact that the movie Fame, in its you know two-hour and 20-minute running time, did not include an act of overt violence against the Montgomery character tells you that uh, I'm probably giving Alan Parker too little credit, that in and of itself, that was probably a pretty brave choice for both director and screenwriter. No, it didn't surprise me later when I found out that McCrane had been you know, working as a director as well. So functioning as a creative talent, both in front and behind the camera, he's directed episodes of TV series like Jericho, ER, Without a Trace, Lie to Me, and of course, Harry's Law. So when you look at Paul McCrane and you say, well, why would anybody necessarily know this guy? Fame was well-reviewed film, but a very old film and doesn't necessarily hold up perfectly well today. Well, it's the combination for me of being not just an actor, but also a director. And more than any of that, amazingly, in some ways, my biggest connection with Paul McCrane is being a singer-songwriter, where from a you know nationwide perspective, from a you know, an actual recording industry of America perspective, he's a singer and songwriter of really just one song. Can one song make a difference? Well, it made that kind of difference to me. It made it to me in the movie, helped make the movie. It made it in high school when I saw a very brave individual step out and openly raise questions about the vulnerability in relationships. In his case, whether he was singing about a male-female relationship and a longing that wasn't being fulfilled, or maybe questions about whether or not some of his male friends should be, quote, more than friends, unquote. I never got to the bottom of that. It wasn't, it wasn't my place to ask. But this song seemed to be coming up time and time again as a catalyst for people who were raising questions about themselves with the kind of ferocious honesty that says, I've got to be this way. I've got to tell it like it is, because it would hurt my face if I faked a smile. Is it okay if I call you mine just for a time?
Is it okay if I call you mine? Just for a time. And I will be just fine. If I know that you know that I'm wanting, needing your love. If I ask of you, is it all right? If I ask you to hold me tight through a cold, dark night. Cause there may be a cloudy day in sight. And I need to let you know that I might be needing your love. Oh, 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 oh. And what I'm trying to say isn't really new. It's just the things that happen to me when I'm reminded of you. Like when I hear your name or see a place that you've been or see a picture of your grin or pass a house that you've been in one time or another. It sets off something in me that I can't explain. And I can't wait to see you again. Oh, babe, I love your love. Oh, 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 oh. And what I'm trying to say isn't really new. It's just the things that happen to me when I'm reminded of you. Do you love Star Trek? How about a good scary movie? Do sexy warrior princesses haunt your dreams? Then you'll love Starbase 66, the international Star Trek horror and fantasy podcast. Join Rick, Karen, and Kennedy each week as they discuss your favorite and not-so-favorite movies and TV shows. Only on the Simply Syndicated 21st Century Media Network. That's my two cents worth. My quick, off-the-cuff version of the lyrics as I recall them from Paul McCrane's song, Is It Okay If I Call You Mine? from the 1980 film Fame, directed by Alan Parker, and from the 1981 high school talent show that I saw a friend perform on stage, just him, his piano, and his most vulnerable feelings. And a year after that, that song being in the background of my head, where the thought of having a certain feeling or a certain memory, when you pass a house somebody's been in, one time or another, and remembering back to the unexplainable moments of being essentially led to this woman's house as a senior in high school or the importance as a sophomore in high school that a party that didn't exist and was never scheduled in a house played such an important role in a certain place and time for a friend of mine and the connection that I was wrestling with literally in a totally non-sexual way between these two women one a friendship that worked and still impacts me to this very day. And another that failed so spectacularly that for something like five years, I went through life doubting and questioning my own judgment, my own wisdom, the Holy Spirit himself, and the intentions of any woman that I met who could have been a friend. That's a powerful, in some cases a powerfully negative, but nevertheless a powerful reaction to... What it means is if it's not okay, if we use the term friend to describe people where the relationship crosses a gender line or crosses some other line in sexual orientation 
or in societal expectation. I don't think I have anything more to say about it now, so I'll let it go with a quick thanks for listening. And if you haven't checked out Inappropriate Conversations yet on Stitcher Radio, you can find the show now at www.stitcher.com.